This morning's message comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 and 13. And the title for this morning's message is The Church's Autoimmune Disease. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 and 13. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Let's pray. Our gracious God, merciful Father, we pray once again that as we begin to look at these two uh, so important verses that are packed with such meaning and application for the church today, Lord, we pray that you would grant us humble hearts and humble spirits before your word. We pray that we would pay close attention to the message of Paul. We pray that you would enable us by your Holy Spirit to apply it to our lives and to this church, Lord God. Father, we do not, I do not want to be like so many churches that read and preach through verses and chapters and books of the Bible and yet so much of it does not stick. So oftentimes Christians walk out of church no different than when they walked in. And this is what has led to so many problems within the church. We go through all of these religious exercises on Sunday morning because in our heart of hearts it makes us feel good. We think somehow it gets us closer to God. We're checking off the block that needs to be checked. And yet so often, many Christians walk out of church utterly untransformed by the Word of God. Father, I pray, I plead with you that that would not be us, that that would not be me, that that would not be this church. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> it has been said that church conflict is inevitable. It's unavoidable because anytime you put together an organization that is comprised of humans, there is bound to be conflict because humans are imperfect, right? We are flawed. We are sinful creatures. Thus, church conflict is 
inevitable. But is it normal? Is it normal? Is this what we should expect and look forward to? Well, the answer is yes, if we do not understand the nature, the structure, and the spiritual reality of church. Because if we rightly understand the church, if we rightly understand what the church is, how and why she exists, then we would understand that church conflict is the equivalent of a spiritual autoimmune disease. The body literally attacking itself. No human ever expects to experience an autoimmune disease. No human ever looks forward to it. And when it happens, no one ever says, well, that's to be expected. No one ever thinks that. Because it's not expected in humans. It's not normal. It is a sign that something is seriously wrong because the body is unhealthy. The body should not attack itself. All the various parts of the body should work together for the good and the prosperity of the entire body. We know that, right? We know that. Yet, when conflict occurs within the church, many think, meh, that's to be expected. It happens. It's quite normal. But, beloved, it is not normal. It may be typical. It may be common. But it is not normal. Because it is not what should be. It is not what should be expected. Because as the old saying goes, if you think it's so, you're probably right. By and large, church conflict is probably the result of self-fulfilled prophecy. We expect it. And so it happens. It is the equivalent of people who get married with a prenuptial agreement. They are literally planning to fail. And I know people say, well, it's, it's just like an insurance policy. It's, it's just in case. But we get insurance policies for things that we know will probably happen. I have auto insurance, not just because the law says I have to, but I know that if I live another 10 or 20 years, I will likely be in an accident. I have health insurance because I know at some point I'm going to go to the hospital. I have life insurance because I know I will die unless Jesus comes back. Those who get married with a prenuptial agreement are literally planning to fail. But rather church conflict... Church conflict, like an autoimmune disease, is a serious sign that something is wrong inside the body. 
something is not right. According to WebMD, the exact causes of autoimmune diseases are unknown. They have several theories, but no one knows exactly what causes them or what triggers them. Therefore, they cannot be cured and they can't be avoided by doing something. However, unlike physical autoimmune diseases, church conflict is 100% preventable. 100%. Because the spiritual autoimmune disease of church conflict is the result. It is the result of the body and the various members of the body not properly caring for itself. Not properly caring for each member of the body. It is the result of poor nourishment. Poor spiritual nourishment or poor neglect of the body as a whole or of certain members within the body. In other words, Paul says in Galatians chapter 5 verse 16, Walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Paul says, Walk by the Spirit and you will not. You will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So what does that mean when we sin? What does it mean when we do gratify the desires of the flesh? It means at that moment, obviously, we are not walking by the Spirit. If a church walks by the Spirit, if every member of a church were to walk by the Spirit, they would not gratify the desires of the flesh. The desires of self. There would be no church conflict. We could eradicate church conflict if we all simply walked by the Spirit consistently. And beloved, I would love, I would love, love, love for grace reformed church to be the first church in church history to eradicate the spiritual autoimmune disease of church conflict. Toward that end, Paul writes in verse 12 of our text, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. Paul is using the illustration of the human body to help us understand that just as the human body has various parts to it, they all form one body. They all form one body. The hand by itself is not the body, it's just the hand. The foot by itself is not the body, it is just a foot. It's a, a part of the body, but it is not the body itself. It is attached to the body. And all of the body parts need to be attached to each other. They all need to be attached to each other, to the body, and functioning properly in order for either the entire body to live or for that body part to live. 
Because as you know, there are some parts of the body that can be separated from the body and only, only the part that is separated will die. Right? You can live without a hand. The hand will die, but the rest of the body will live. You can live without a leg. The leg will die, but the rest of the body will live. Now that is not to say that there are some body parts that simply are insignificant. No part of the body is insignificant, whether you're talking about the church or the physical body. I mean, there are things we can go without, but to lose a hand would put you at a significant disadvantage to having two hands. I wouldn't want to lose a finger. If I went to the doctor and he said, there's something wrong with your finger, we're going to have to amputate it. My first question would be, is there any other choice? I like my fingers, all ten of them. And if we can save it, I want to save it. Nobody ever says, eh, it's just a finger, no worries, go ahead, take it off. What? Wait, why? Why? Why are we amputating a finger? But there are some body parts that we absolutely cannot do without. There are some body parts that to remove them would kill the body. The body can live with one kidney. The body can live with one lung. The body can live without the gallbladder. But you certainly cannot remove the liver. You can't remove both kidneys. And you certainly cannot live by removing both lungs. What is interesting, however, is that Paul says, so it is with Christ. So it is with Christ. All believers are members of the body of Christ. And just like all of the body parts are different, right? All of our body parts are different. The hand doesn't look like the foot. Foot doesn't look like the leg or the knee. My knee doesn't look like the elbow. All the body parts are different. They all have different functions. They all look differently, yet they all have one thing in common. They are all attached to the same body. Together they make up one body. All believers are attached to the body of Christ. This reality exists in two ways. First, Christ dwells within us. Christ dwells within us. Galatians 2.20, Paul writes, It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Christ lives in me, Paul says. And then he says, And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. So right there in that one verse, he says two things. Number one, it is Christ who lives in me. Christ indwells us. He lives within us. But then he says, the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. Listen, in the Son of God. I live, Paul says, in the Son of God. 
Not only is Christ within us, but we are in Christ. We are inside of Christ. We are in union with Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says this in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. All of the blessings we receive as believers, we receive them because of our being inside of Christ. Because of our union with Christ. Remember what God the Father said at Jesus' baptism. The clouds parted and they heard a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. With whom I am well pleased. The Father is, has always been, and will ever be well pleased with God the Son. In and of yourself... God is not pleased with you. God is not pleased with me in and of myself because we're all sinners. We are all deserving of God's wrath and of his anger and of his justice. But as believers, we are in Christ. We are clothed with Christ. We are clothed with His righteousness. We are in union with Christ. We are inside of Christ. Thus, all of the joy and the blessings and the goodness and the pleasure that God the Father pours out upon the Son gets poured on us. Because we are in Christ. We are blessed in Christ, listen, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Every spiritual blessing. Not many spiritual blessings. Not most spiritual blessings. But every spiritual blessing in the heavenly place. Because there is not a single blessing that God the Father would withhold from His only beloved Son. And as long as we are in Christ by faith, we get all of that. Isn't that amazing? As long as we remain in union with Christ by faith through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, none of this means that Christ is not seated at the right hand of God the Father. Don't misunderstand. Christ remains in bodily form as one person seated at the right hand of God the Father. Christ indwells us and we are in Christ by means of the Holy Spirit. Remember, the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God the Father. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God the Son. You have a spirit. That makes you, you. That is the real you. I have a spirit that makes me, me. And if you were to die, 
and your spirit somehow left your body and entered into me, it could rightly be said that you are now inside of me because your spirit is inside of me. The spirit of Christ is in you if you are a believer. His spirit is in you. His spirit surrounds you. Thus Christ, Christ is in you and he envelops you by the power and the presence of his Holy Spirit. And this theological truth is so, so important for a second reason which pertains to our text this morning. And that is this. How we treat fellow Christians, how we treat one another within the church is how we treat Christ himself. Remember, Paul figured this out on the Damascus Road when he was converted. The resurrected Christ stops him and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You wonder if Saul wanted to scratch his head and say, you know, what do you mean? Why am I? Who are you? And he says, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Paul might have thought for a moment, no, I'm not persecuting you. I'm persecuting your believers, your followers, but not you because you're dead. We crucified you. You're dead. Or so Paul thought Jesus was dead. He realized in a powerful way that he was very much alive. But nonetheless, Jesus said, why are you persecuting me? The disciples were taught this when Jesus was with them during his three years ministry. Recall his teaching regarding the day of judgment in Matthew chapter 25, where he explains what the day of judgment is going to look like with very vivid imagery. And in that passage, Jesus tells us that on the great day of judgment, he will sit upon his throne and he will separate the peoples of the world as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goat. The sheep being the believers that he would place to his right. The goats are unbelievers that he would place to his left. And then Jesus in Matthew chapter 25 says that he will say to the sheep who are on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And they'll say, Lord, when did we do these things? When did we do these things? When, Jesus, when, when were you naked and we clothed you? When were you hungry and we fed you? Jesus, when were you ever in prison? And we came to visit you. And Jesus says in Matthew chapter 25, And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, that is to believers, you did it to me. And to the goats, which are the unbelievers on his left, he will say to them, Depart from me, you cursed into eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. 
I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. I was naked and you did not clothe me. I was sick and I was in prison and you did not even bother to visit me. And they will say to him, Lord, when? When did we not do these things for you? When did we not feed you when you were hungry or give you drink when you were thirsty? When were you sick and in prison and we did not come to you? Lord, when did we do these things? And Jesus will answer them, Truly, truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, to believers, you did not do it to me. Beloved, this is not... This is not just a warning for the way unbelievers in the world treat believers. This is also a warning of how we treat one another. Of how we treat those within the church. Those within the body. The way you treat your fellow believer, the way you speak about your fellow believer, the way you think about your fellow believer, or the assumptions that you make about them, listen, you are doing that to Christ Himself. You're doing that to Christ. When we treat fellow believers harshly, when we do not treat them with mercy, or kindness, or love, when we speak ill of them, or when we assume the worst in them, or about them, these are the things that we are doing to Christ Himself. Because Christ is living in them. They are in Christ. They are members of the body of Christ. This is part of what Jesus meant when he said in Luke chapter 6, verses 37 and 38. Jesus there says, judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. And it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. Listen to this. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Jesus says the measure you use against other people, particularly against believers, the standard by which you judge your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ is the standard by which Christ himself is going to judge you. Now, this is not to say that salvation is based on works. Don't misunderstand me. It is not. However, the Bible is clear that even Christians will be made to stand at the day of judgment. And somehow we will be held accountable for all of our actions, for all of our words, for all of our deeds, for all of our thoughts. For example, writing to Christians... Paul, writing to Christians in Corinth, will say to them in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, For we, 
believers. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. There's a day of judgment for believers. Or Paul, for example, will also write to the church in Rome, to believers in Rome, Romans chapter 14, verses 10 to 12, Paul will say this, For we, believers, we will all stand, well, believers and unbelievers, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Each of us will give an account of himself to God. Now, what that will look like exactly for believers on the day of judgment is unclear. Because we know that believers are going to get into heaven. But here's what is clear. Number one, salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. I want to be clear about that. Salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. But here's what is also clear is that we will all be held accountable somehow for the way in which we treated our fellow believers within the church. Ultimately, this is the point that Paul is driving at in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 13. This is the point that he has been driving at. This is why, as I said last Sunday, this is why Paul doesn't spend a lot of time fleshing out all of the spiritual gifts in the previous section because that's not really his point. His point is not really to help the church in Corinth understand all of the spiritual gifts and how they work and what they look like. The point that Paul wants us to get is that we are all one body. We are the same body. And we should care for one another. We should love one another. We should be merciful to one another. We should be patient with one another in the same way and to the same extent that we do for our own physical bodies. I, mean, I don't know about you, but I make a lot of excuses for myself. I extend a lot of grace and patience and mercy toward myself and my own body. Yet sadly, far too often, churches behave like they have an autoimmune disease. Constantly attacking themselves. Constantly attacking one another within the same body. And so, in verse 12 of our text, Paul tells us what we are. In verse 12, simply states a fact, what we are. And then in verse 13, he tells us why this is so. Why this is so. Notice verse 13, he says, For in one spirit, four, you hear the explanation? Here's the explanation he's giving for verse 12. 
For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of the one spirit. In one spirit, or into one spirit. We were all baptized into one body, the body of Christ. Now, there is a little bit of debate about the proper translation of the first half of verse 13. The New American Standard, for example, says, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, which would seem to indicate that the Holy Spirit is the one doing the baptizing. By one Spirit we were all baptized. However, the ESV and the New Revised Standard Version, which I think is even better, I think has the essence right. The New Revised Standard Version reads this way, For in the one Spirit, for in the one Spirit, we were all baptized. In other words, is the Holy Spirit the one doing the baptizing, or is the Holy Spirit the one we are baptized with? into one body, the body of Christ. Well, all of the commentators I read all agreed that likely Paul means the Holy Spirit is the one we are baptized with and that Christ is the one who is doing the baptizing. Christ baptizes with the Holy Spirit or into such as immersion into the Holy Spirit is the idea. And this is for three reasons. First, the passive verb in the Greek indicates that someone else is doing the baptizing and that the Holy Spirit is the agent that we are baptized with. So that's the first reason. Secondly, nowhere else in Scripture do we read of the Holy Spirit being the one who is doing the baptizing. We don't see that anywhere else. If the Holy Spirit is the one doing the baptizing, this is the only place where we find this. Third, John the Baptist foretold that this is what Jesus would do. Recall that in Matthew chapter 3, John says this, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He... He, the one who comes, the Messiah, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So Jesus will baptize believers, according to John the Baptist, with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, this baptism of the Holy Spirit, will have this winnowing effect of separating the wheat from the chaff. Believers from unbelievers. The Holy Spirit does that primarily through the Word of God. Pricks the heart. And will either show those who are genuine, because they have the desire to have their hearts pricked and their sin chipped away, or it will prove that they are not truly believers. 
True believers will have that desire to willingly, a willingness to know God rightly and fully, and to be taught the whole counsel of God, and even to be taught the difficult teachings of Christ so that our character may be shaped into the character of Christ. But the chaff, nominal believers, will, as Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3, accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Jesus also foretold this baptism to his disciples. In Acts chapter 1, remember that? This was after his resurrection and right before he ascends into heaven, before the eyes of the disciples. He says to them, Jesus says to them in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. This is fulfilled in the very next chapter, Acts chapter 2. When the Holy Spirit is poured out at Pentecost in fulfillment of Joel chapter 2, they receive power. They receive power in the sense of a willingness and a boldness to go forward and to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world. Peter, for example, who once denied Christ before his face three times, I don't know the man. Pentecost takes place, they're baptized in the Holy Spirit, and suddenly Peter is willing to boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, to be arrested, to be flogged, and ultimately to be crucified for Christ, upside down, according to Fox's book of Martyrs. And we see that they all became witnesses to Christ in Jerusalem and to the ends of the earth, starting right there at Pentecost. Because we read in Acts chapter 2, verse 5, that there were gathered there, quote, men from every nation. This is all the result of the baptism into, or the baptism of, the Holy Spirit. Now what is really important to note from our text is that in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, Paul says, in one spirit, we were all baptized. In one spirit, we were all baptized. This baptism with the Holy Spirit is something that occurs at the moment of regeneration. There is no second baptism of the Holy Spirit that we need to seek. There's no, there's no second baptism. And this baptism with the Holy Spirit is not, is not necessarily accompanied with the gift of tongues or any other miraculous signs. These are two errors that Christians often make. There is one baptism of the Holy Spirit. And this one baptism happens at the moment of conversion and is what it means to be indwelled and enveloped by the Holy Spirit. 
Some Christians also make the mistake of thinking that the gift of tongues should accompany this one spirit baptism, mainly because this occurs in some instances, in some instances within the New Testament, namely in the book of Acts, but not in every instance. For example, the Apostle Paul did not immediately begin speaking in tongues when he was converted on the Damascus Road. Lydia did not speak in tongues when she was converted. The Philippian jailer did not speak in tongues when he was converted. We need to be careful not to be selective when studying Scripture. We also need to be careful not to make descriptive text normative for every believer. The indicatives of Scripture, the indicatives and the imperatives are what are normative for every believer, not the descriptive text. And there are two indicatives in verse 13. First indicative, in the one spirit we were all baptized into one body. That is, by the one baptism of the Holy Spirit, we were all brought into union with Christ. That's an indicative. That is a state of being. That is a spiritual and theological reality that exists for every believer. And the second indicative, we were all made to drink of one spirit, the Holy Spirit. What Paul means by this is that at the moment of conversion, every believer is immersed into the Holy Spirit. We are baptized into the Holy Spirit. We're immersed into the Holy Spirit and we are filled with the Holy Spirit. We are made to drink in the Holy Spirit. We're like an infant inside the womb where the amniotic fluid is around him and inside of him. He's in his lungs. He breathes it. Well, he's not breathing. He's just in it. We are immersed into the Holy Spirit and we are filled with the Holy Spirit. And in this way, Christ is in us and surrounds us. Christ indwells us and we are in Christ. In the end, the point is this. The point is this. If every Christian, if every Christian truly understood this, this truth and believed it and lived it out, then we could eradicate, we could eradicate this spiritual autoimmune disease which presents itself with the signs and symptoms of conflict, strife, and division within the church. If we could truly grasp the idea that we are all one body. That we are all members of the body of Christ. Then we would love each other. We would care for one another. We would be kind to one another. We would be patient with one another. Just as we would with our own physical body. Because this is, this is our body. You 
are my body. I am your body. We are all parts of the same body. I pray that we'll treat each other that way. Let's pray. Our gracious God, Heavenly Father, Lord, how I pray and hope that this truth will sink deep, deep, deep into the hearts and minds and soul of all who are here. I pray that this truth, Lord God, by your Holy Spirit, would just take hold of our heart and of our affections, that we would see one another, that we would see believers in the universal body of Christ, but that we would also see each other in this local body of Christ as our body to attack another fellow believer is to attack ourselves. It's to attack our own body. Lord, I pray, help us to not ever, ever forget this truth, but to live by it. I pray that you would give us eyes to see each other as our own body and that we would treat each other as though we are our own body, members of the same body. And I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.